pray for us this morning. Good morning, everybody, and thanks for being here with us in person. And for those of you online, thanks for being with us as well. We're glad you're here today. Uh, I want to just real quickly before we begin, just thank uh, Kim and Vita and uh, Todd and Danielle and Amanda for helping with the trunk or treat uh, here on Friday. Uh, we're not sure how many kids came through, but one lady had 600 bags of candy and she ran out. And so there were cars down the street, around the back of the building, and all the way coming through here, and it was a great time. And I just want to tell you a quick thing, uh, something that we believe in as a church that we've been involved in, myself been involved in with the Keys Mentoring Program uh, through the school district where we have a, a mentor with one of the students. We haven't been able to meet with them since uh, last February, but the little first grader that I met with last year is now in the second grade, and as he was driving through, all of a sudden I, I hear him holler, hey, there's my buddy, there's my pal, and it just made my whole day. And uh, so let me just give that as kind of a caveat of it's important to invest in the lives of people, uh, no matter how old they are or how young they may be, uh, because even that little guy made a big difference on me. And so as we get back to opening back up, I hope as soon, if any of you have that kind of time where you can give somebody an hour just to play games and talk with and encourage and, and see how things are going in their life, it makes a difference. And that's my shameless plug for the morning thus far. So. So glad you're here this morning. Anybody uh, politically fatigued? Have you, had, have you had just about enough of this nonsense? Um, you know, I don't know about you, but I've seen all the stories of the people saying, if this person wins, I'm moving here. If this person wins, I'm moving there. And New Zealand said, hey, good for you. You can't come here. And, uh, and so that pretty much wiped me out because I wanted to be there. But there's a cartoon I want you to see this morning um, that's up here. We're, we're in our ser sermon series called Regardless. But look at this cartoon for a minute. You see a red balloon and a blue balloon. And, and, and let me just promise you this. Both balloons are full of hot air. Uh, and, and more and more, more hot air. And all of a sudden you get to that fourth one there. Does anybody just feel like that's where we are right now, just a couple of days away from from the, the presidential election, which, as Simon prayed, the most important one in history. And, and, and let me just be fair, people have argued that 100,000 times. Um, the last one was the most important one in history. And some will even say, actually, the most important one was Abraham Lincoln whenever he ran for president. But I'll just tell you, whatever the case may be, every election is important. And it's the most important one in history. But I don't know about you, but I, I'm kind of feeling this way a little bit. Because about the time I get a little hotter here, I get a little more over here, and I just like to take a pen and just poke both of them. Uh, but my, my problem is, is that I probably get some sort of uh, uh, disease or something from the air inside the hot air uh, in the balloons, right? And I think we're all kind of feeling that way just a little bit, that it just never seems to stop and never seems to end this morning. And we're really at this place. And, and so as we talk this morning about this ideal of regardless, I want to put in your head for the very beginning that as, as Christ followers, as Christians, and as the church, it doesn't matter if your candidate wins or loses or somebody else's candidate wins or loses. We as Christ followers have a commitment and a command, a mandate through the gospel and through the truth of God's word to whoever wins, regardless of the outcome, to trust in God in all that we do. And let me tell you something, if you've already cast your vote, you didn't pray about it, shame on you, you should have. And if you haven't cast your vote yet, you should pray about that. And vote with a good conscience knowing that God is leading you towards his plan that's greater than yours than you could ever possibly imagine. And if you're not planning on voting, absolutely shame on you, but thank you. Be quiet in advance because we don't want to hear from you if you're not going to bother to vote. That's the American way, right? I want to show a couple statistics for you. Pew Research, uh, Research in, in 2014 uh, put this this. Uh, uh, information up. They said today, 92% of Republicans uh, are to the right of median of Democrats, and 94% of Democrats are to the left of median of Republicans. And so we, we've gotten so polarized in what we do, it kind of looks like this graph up here. You can kind of see that. Uh, 
show me the next slide here. Yeah, so 94, 2004, 2014, you see the red being the Republican, the blue being the Democrat, and it says, here's what basically somebody said. Oh, you think that's a polarizing statement? I'm going to stick this in the ground right here. And the next candidate, instead of saying, you know what, or the next person, uh, the voter says, you know, why don't you just kind of pull this back a little bit? They said, no, 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 I'll do you one better, and I'll see your polarization, and I'll up it. And we just keep moving further and further and further. In 94, we did that. 2004, we did that. 2014. And here we are in 2020. And I don't know about you, but we're in such a political climate right now that we're so polarized on the ends that I'm not sure anybody knows where the middle is. And I'm sure enough certain I don't think we can meet on any sort of middle ground or, as I like to say, common ground. Isn't that a shame? That we have gotten to a place where we chastise identity politics, but we participate in it. This is Pew Research, who actually talked to a whole lot of evangelical Christians. And I'll just be honest with you, that evangelical right vote, we really need to do some examining if we fall in that category of of an identity politics. We really do. Uh, Another graphic put up there in uh, in 2019, it was actually by a guy guy named uh, Yaffa Frederick, who wrote uh, for CNN, he wrote an article called Fractured States of America. It was a really interesting thing. And he says, in 2019, there's only one thing that unites us just how divided we think we are. In fact, according to Public Religion Research Institute, 91% of Americans feel we are polarized and 74% feel we are extremely polarized. Anybody feel like that? Does the balloon opposite your party feel like it's getting bigger in your room? And your response, instead of trying to respond to it intellectually, graciously, maybe prayerfully, is to blow your balloon up a little bit bigger and respond back to a greater polarization so that you can combat whatever that argument is that's against your point of view or against your values or your beliefs or at least your emotions for the moment because I'm going to be fair with you for a second. I actually think we can no longer have a a conversation in America because nobody thinks critically anymore. We only think emotionally. And the thing that qualifies that is that we, we spout emotionally. And we don't let those emotions actually ignite our brain. Now, some of you are from an older generation, and you're looking at me like, well, that's not me. You know what? Good for you. I hope that's the case. But I think you can see the younger generation especially, you can see that emotionally they're charged up, and intellectually they're turned off. I really believe that, and I'm in that group because I'm tired of thinking. I'm tired of of milling over and chewing with. I just want to get angry and move on. Am I the only one? I'm already there. It gets even worse, though, because we dove a little deeper in this article, and it says this. It says, many parents no longer want their children marrying people from a different political party. 35% of Republicans and 45% of Democrats, to be precise. Workers like a guy named Richard in this article feel politics simply has no place in the office. Hang on for this statement. Are you ready? And Americans at large dread the ideal of Thanksgiving dinners with family members who might bring up Donald Trump at the table. That's where we are in 2019, and now 2020. COVID may actually be a blessing for us because Butterball Turkey is selling smaller turkeys because they think fewer people are going to gather together in family. So now we don't get to have the argument of whether Donald Trump or Joe Biden or whoever else, I don't even know who the Green Party libertarian person is, comes up. I feel like if whoever the libertarian is, we can't eat turkey. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. What about you, parents who have kids who are not quite of marrying age or who are of marrying age? Would, would you let your kids marry someone of a different political persuasion? You know, back in the 70s and, and, and maybe a little bit 
earlier on, the same group of evangelicals would have said, I won't let someone marry somebody opposite my race. Different my race. Let's put that a different way. Opposite is probably too far of a politically charged word. White people have to marry white people. Black people have to marry black people. Brown people have to marry brown people and so on, right? And now we've moved to the place where you can't be a red or a blue person and marry the other one. You can't have purple families anymore. whenever Abraham Lincoln was actually running for Senate in the state of Illinois, the great Lincoln-Douglas debate, that a thousand delegates gathered in Illinois for this great conversation, and Lincoln put out a speech, and in it he quoted a passage of Scripture where he talked about a house divided cannot stand against itself. And during the time, what was happening was Kansas and Nebraska were coming into statehood, and the debate was whether they would be free or slave states. And Nebraska in particular was a really challenging one. And Abraham Lincoln, in that speech, he said, listen, no matter what happens in this country, we're going to be so polarized on the issue of slavery itself that you'll either be on one side of the pole or on the other, but you will not be in the middle, and it absolutely will tear this nation apart in the process. And then he gets elected to the Senate, and then later on to president, and the great civil war comes out on the issue of slavery. Abraham Lincoln is right. Now, this passage out of Matthew chapter 12, we're going to read part of that in a minute, but I kind of want to tell you what's going on. Jesus just got through casting out demons. And in the process of casting out demons, he says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. He says, knowing their thoughts, not even hearing them, knowing their thoughts, Jesus says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. Because he was getting charged with the idea that because he cast out demons, he must have the power of Satan to do so. And then he gets in their thoughts, right? Because they're thinking this, and he's talking back to him. He goes on in the end of verse 26. He says, how then will this kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's really funny because the people who were complaining to Jesus about casting out demons were the political and the religious leaders of the time. Isn't that something? Politics and religion have yet again figured out how to get it wrong about God. I'm all for a belief system and a faith system, but for organized religion, listen, I'm one of those people that just says we've got to be cautious about that because we get into these rote systems that man wrote and we get away from the reality of the Scripture and we're not acting like the God that we, we claim to serve. And Jesus didn't even have to have these guys talk. He had to listen to their thoughts, and he heard their thoughts. And they said, listen, you must only have the power to cast out demons by Satan himself, so therefore you must be of Satan. And I love how Jesus turned that around. Really? How'd you guys do it? How'd you guys do it? And when he said that a house divided cannot stand, nobody understands that better than anybody who has a Texas Aggie or anybody from that other school down in Austin. And if we go back to the whole marriage thing, I'll be honest with you. I've told my kids, you gotta, you got to marry somebody who loves God and doesn't, doesn't go to university college. Other than that, we're good. Because a house divided against itself cannot stand. I love this country. I love the United States of America. I love the freedoms that we have. We are not perfect, and you'll never hear me say so. Is there a better place to live on the planet? I don't believe so, and I've been to lots of places growing up for a lot of reasons. One, it's just my home, and I'm comfortable here. But we got a lot of freedoms, and part of that freedom is to argue and fight and 
bellow and moan and point fingers and talk bad about each other. But that's not the way it ought to be done. And it shouldn't be done that way, especially through the body of Christ and through the church. And so regardless of what the outcome of this election may be, we have a mandate. We have a mandate to live less political and more biblical. And it's high time that as, as, as Christians, we start doing that. Because if we don't do that, instead of trying to figure out what kind of church we are, or what we believe in, or how we worship and who we worship, instead it's going to be, tell me how your church votes. Tell me how your, your church stands on this policy. Now, many of you know that I am I'm very much a pro-life kind of guy. I believe in, 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 in life beginning at conception. I believe in the protection of every child, no matter what the difficulty may be. I, I believe that there's no legitimate reason for an abortion to ever be performed, ever. And even that statement alone gets people going, well, what about in the case of this and this and this and this? If we would start loving one another and listening to Jesus and reading his book, we wouldn't get into the whatabouts. We would have a clear conscience of knowing life is hard because sin enters into this world and death follows with it and things don't work out the way they're supposed to. But instead, we decide to get on a political bench and we start pushing our political agendas around. And when we do so, we isolate people from the reality of the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is saying, is that if I'm casting out these demons by the name of God, and you guys can't see that if the Spirit is upon me, then the kingdom has arrived right in front of you. And you can't even see a king to know that you ought to be bowing to him instead of arguing with him and blaming him for tapping into a power that he's greater than. Regardless of the outcome of this election, we as Christ followers have got to change our mind. If you'll turn with, you, with me in your Bible to John chapter 17, we're going to see the high priestly prayer where Jesus spends time just before he is ready to go to the cross. And he's talking to his disciples, and he's reminding them that he's going to go to the cross. And he has taught them. He's been with them for, for three years now. And many a time, Jesus would talk to his people and say, you know what? I'm only going to be with you for a little while. And they had no idea what that meant. And sometimes he would say, you watched me perform miracles. You watched me do these things. They had no idea what that meant. They had no idea of the true authority and power of who he was and what he was able to do. And his time had come to go to the cross and to be crucified for the sins of all mankind. And so we see in John chapter 17, verse 6 through 11, we're going to look at this passage for just a minute. And Jesus, he, this is what's called the high priestly prayer. And he's praying and he says, I have manifested your name, God, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. You gave me lost people, and I've told them who you are. I've identified you, and I've shown them the truth. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me underline this I'm praying for them I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me for they are yours isn't it good to know Jesus had a prayer request and you were on it all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them and I am no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that, listen to this, they may be one even as we are one. You ever watch somebody about to make a really bad decision? You 
ever know people who just have a knack for getting themselves into trouble or making the bad choice or going down a road that you've told them a hundred times not to go down, and then after they've gone down that road and been down it and made a couple of forks and turns and everything else, and they just stay on that path because they're ignorant, stubborn, bullheaded, stupid, foolish, whatever you want to call them, whatever the case may be, and they get themselves into a whole heap of trouble, and they come running back to you, and you just so badly want to grab them by the throat and just say, I told you so. How did you think this was going to turn out any differently? But instead, I'm really sorry you made that decision. I love you. Let's see how we can fix it. I see this a lot of time with, with, with parents as they adult, uh, their adult children grow up and they, they make some decisions. They're trying to figure out where's that line? How do we balance that? And Jesus is saying right here in this, these, these six verses through 6 through 11, he goes, here's the thing. I've been with you and you've kind of been united on me and you still haven't quite figured out fully who I am. But you do know my father because I introduced him to you. But I'm going to leave this place, and when I leave this place, you're going to have trouble because you're not going to be united, and this world's going to divide you, and you're going to be so divided by all the things that the world throws at you, you're going to miss what actually brought us together. And it wasn't just Jesus, it was God the Father who said, i got to figure out a way to get those people united on something. Because if you unite on something yourself and you leave God out of the equation, there's no telling what bad news you can do. Just go back and read Genesis over the Tower of Babel. When God looked at them and said they have their mind set on this, that if I don't disrupt their language and confuse them, there's no telling what they'll do. In fact, God was basically saying, you think that's bad. They're polarized on doing evil. They're going to put a stake in the ground and say, I'll show you even more. Jesus says, Father, you've given them to me, and I want them to be one just as you and I are one. And I know they're going to run into trouble, and I know they're going to have difficulty, and I know they're not going to follow me, and I know there's going to be days that their, their, their faith is going to waver if they have any at all, and I know there's going to be days that the world's going to come upon them, and they're going to be persecuted, and they're going to be broken down, and they're going to lose friends, they're going to lose jobs, they're going to lose money, they're going to lose hope, they're going to lose peace, they're going to lose all these things. Father, I know these things, but will you please remind them that they belong to you and you love them dearly? And will you keep them united together because divided that house will fall? Isn't it good to know Jesus had a prayer request when you were on it? And it's almost as if he was willing to say, listen, it's not that I don't love you, but I know you. I know you so well that you don't have the desire or the will or the authority to avoid the temptation and the persecution that's coming your way. And so I'm going to be praying for you. And the best thing you could possibly do in my physical absence is stay together. I don't know how many of you watch uh, commercials, but the Geico commercial is one of my favorites right now around this time of year with the the Halloween season and everything where they're running away from the the serial killers out there, right? And and, and there's a running car, and then there's a, a, a little shack full of chainsaws. And one of them said, quick, get into the running car. And somebody goes, are you crazy? Get behind the chainsaws. And at the very end of that commercial, they go running away, and they go, quick, to the cemetery. Never underestimate the power of stupid people in large crowds. Never underestimate the power of someone to take the path of least resistance and then get people to go with them. Never underestimate the power of people to say, you know what, even if God were to present himself right here in front of me, I think I'm going to try it my way first because I'm just stubborn enough to do that. And who knows, this, this, this wimpy God that we all serve, he's going to be there for me anyway after I make a series of bad decisions. Isn't that a terrible way to have a relationship with your creator? And yet we condone that and produce that. And Jesus is saying, look, I've tried to teach you. Pete, you especially. James, John, you guys are 
are going to be the leaders of this group. And you've got to hold them together. But nobody's going to want to be held together if they don't have a relationship with me. And so the first prayer in the high priestly prayer, the first request on Jesus' list was to pray for those who already belong to the house of God. Because he knew they were going to struggle. That's you and me, isn't it? Look at the world we live in right now. Look at the politics of the day. Look how challenging things are. And here we are, instead of trying to figure out if, if Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or, or Mickey Mouse or, or whoever is going to lead us into whatever the next great thing is or get rid of the coronavirus or get our jobs back or, or get us universal health care or not. Or who, you're thinking about all those things those people can do for you. And no matter what the case is going to be, someone's going to be different from you on this. I mean, if they're different from you on this, we have this, this cognitive bias that actually says, because they're different from me on this, they must have a character flaw. Now, I can do the same thing and have a different viewpoint, and I've just had a mistake. I don't have a character flaw. But we've gone into such a place to where we're just blowing more hot air in our opposing balloons that we've decided that somebody's character is bad because of what they do or don't believe in that's opposite or different from us. And Jesus is saying, really, if you would stop looking at all the negative and look at the positive, and you would be one as we are one, me and the Father. And you know how Jesus stayed that way? He stayed connected to the Father. Early in the morning, he got up to pray and to spend time with God. He prayed, he fasted, he spent time, he avoided those things that may create temptation. And when temptation does come his way, as he was tempted by Satan three times out in the wilderness, he used scripture as his defense. Today we use arguments, we use analogies, we use what-if situations. And I'm telling you, friends, regardless of how this thing turns out, we don't want to be on the wrong side of God. And it doesn't matter if you vote red, blue, purple, green, whatever. It does not matter in the end because guess what? We're only here for a short time on this earth. And yeah, we want to live as comfortably and as peaceably as we can. And we want the next generation to have the best possible outcome. But I'm going to tell you something. I don't think that right now in America that I am proud of the legacy that I'm leaving to my children and my potential grandchildren down the road by the way that we're treating one another, let alone the way we handle our differences. I don't know about you. And I know there's been a lot of conversation about character. And you can point fingers at character of the two primary candidates right now. But I'm going to tell you something. You know what character really matters? Is when you're backed against a wall, you're pushed and you're shoved and you get persecuted for the things that you truly believe in that are Scripture and your character stands firm and it says, you know what, no matter what side all this stuff comes down with, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's the character I'm going to have. That's the character that I'm going to be a part of. Because regardless of the outcome of this, my God always wins. And Jesus is the only one who can save. And there's no candidate, no ballot, whether it be mail-in, drive-through, walk-in, put a mask on or not. And there's none of that's going to save us from eternal damnation and give us the salvation that only comes through Christ Jesus. But Jesus wasn't done in his high priestly prayer. Skip down with me to John chapter 17, verse 20, and, and see what he does next. He says this, he says, I do not ask for these only, being those who already belong to the household of God, but also for those who will believe in me, underline this, through their word. Hey, God, I want them to remain one as you and I are one because they need the strength and the conviction and the power and the authority to stay together. Now, I want them to remain one because the word that they speak, the character they demonstrate, the salvation that oozes through them because of what Christ did for them is going to be a reflection to the rest of the world that's going to be looking at our identity politics instead of seeing our identity in Christ. And I want their words to bring people to faith 
in Christ. Verse 21, what they, what they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be even uh, one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, and that they may become perfectly one, so that the world the world may know that you sent me and love them as you have loved me. I have no idea how a world right now could be wrapped up in what my political views are, especially when I get animated and excited and angry and frustrated and I bring in all the world's arguments, whether it be CNN, Pew Research, or anything else, and I get so excited and polarized, whether it be just a little far left or right or a little far right or left, I can't see how the world can see any of those things and see Jesus in the middle of that. Now, there are some who are skilled at that. They may take an argument or a conversation and figure out how to put a little Jesus into it. But I'm going to tell you something. The rest of the world is looking at the church. And as we just got through looking at at 1 Peter and seeing how we need to be prepared for that, the rest of the world is looking at the church. They're trying to figure out how we vote on things, how we believe in things, but how do we live in between elections? What do those four years look like in between those elections? And and it's, it's actually curious to me that the world actually cares how the church votes. Isn't that something? The world actually cares that the, that the Protestant denomination here or the, the Catholic denomination here or the non-denomination here, that they vote a certain way. Because what they've realized is, is that the church is the most segregated place in America at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And because they're the most segregated place in America at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, they must hold to some sort of value to hold them together. And that's why the brown church is over here, and the black church is over there, and the yellow church is over there, and the white church is over there, and the purple church is over here, and the green and the blue and whatever. They're all segregated for whatever reason, and it must be something deeper than just skin color because they must think alike, they must act alike, they must do alike. And when someone stands in the pulpit, whether it be me or anybody else, and they charge you up for some political message, and they fail to bring in the reality of Jesus that's saying that you need to be one in him alone, then we're missing the boat. And we're further the divide in Christianity and certainly divide in our country because we're not seeing people who are different from us or even think different than us or have beliefs and values that are different than us as being made in the very image of God and in need of salvation. And so Jesus' second part of this prayer was first that they would know who they belong to and who loves them and who died for them and through their actions in the second part that they would show others who weren't there to witness that firsthand like you disciples were And they would see that they love Jesus by how they treat one another and how they treat people who differ politically than what they do. And the reason why this was so important was because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the politics at the end of the day, were so busy tearing the people apart that they couldn't recognize Jesus standing there in the flesh. If you were to back up to verse 4 in John chapter 17, you would see that Jesus says, the mission that you've sent me to do has been completed. My part of this is done, but it still continues on for everybody else that's out there. Friends, I don't know about you, but I am tired of this. I'm to a point now where I don't even want to talk just because I don't want to get nailed to a cross of of politics by somebody else. I just don't want to talk about it. I just don't want to be there. Walmart this past week, some of you may know this, Walmart this past week removed all of their guns from their stores. And the reason why they stated to do that is because they don't know how the election is going to turn out. But they want to make sure that if there's looting and, and rioting and everything else, regardless of how it turns out, 
that they're not going to add to the situation and make it worse. It's funny, actually. Walmart is this world leader, and we follow a lot of things that Walmart does. And if you don't think that's true, then you stay home Black Friday. If you hear me say nothing else this morning, I hope you'll hear this. Regardless of the outcome, we must remain on guard. We must remain on guard. And I dare say, I don't think that's truly at the height of our priority, especially right now. Does that mean you can't campaign for your candidate? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Does that mean you can't have spirited conversation and debate? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Does that mean you can't put flags on your cars or, or banners in your front yard? No, that does not mean that at all. What it means is, if you put it in its right perspective, that no matter who wins this election, that it was by God's authority that they did so, and that he has reason for them to be in there. And if you just want to look back at the Old Testament and see over and over that when Israel split north and south, that God often used other uh, nations and other belief systems and other people to come in and punish his own children for their disobedience, then Thomas Jefferson may have been right when he said the government you have is, a de- is the government you deserve. The government you elect is the government you deserve. And if you really think that whoever's going to win whatever election is really going to be the key to your life and happiness and success, then I'm going to just challenge you. You don't know Jesus. And if you're going to sit in a church, in a pew, or in a hard plastic chair and say that you do and not call upon him in the good and the bad times and not trust him in some very unknown and challenging times and not believe that he's greater than your anxieties about this election, then I'm just going to challenge you even more. Either you don't know him or you just haven't spent enough time with him. And if you just give him half the amount of time you spend on your politics, you may actually find out, man, this Jesus guy's pretty awesome. And he loves me. And he loves people who don't even know him yet, and I haven't been out there to tell him that yet. And so how do we maintain unity in such political times? How do we do that? Well, I want to just point to a couple of things here. First of all, we recognize who's really in charge. I love that because as I was studying this week, I was just thinking about that because I'm the master of my domain. I am the king of my own castle. And what I say goes until Amanda comes. A couple weeks ago, my kids and I, the four of us, we we met for breakfast and they were telling us about how their their college was going. And they they told us, yeah, we're done with in-person classes at Thanksgiving. We're thinking about moving home for two months. (laughs) Wait a minute. Are you asking or are you telling me? Our rooms are still up there. Your rooms, really? You mean the two rooms in my house that are decorated for for your liking? Love my kids. I hope they do come home. I hope they do come home. But at that moment, I realized I wasn't near as much in charge of these things as I should be. But look what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. It says, Daniel says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel was 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 against uh, Nebuchadnezzar at the time, and Nebuchadnezzar was was going to give him a really hard time. He and Darius, and they were going to give him a really hard time. And, and this is at the very beginning of Daniel, where they're talking about the foods that he eats and everything else. And Daniel lays out his oneness with God of saying, "Listen." Would you allow us an exception? In fact, it's going to be better and cheaper for you. We just want to eat things different, but we want to serve and honor our God. And we'll do whatever you tell us to do as long as it doesn't violate our consciousness with our faith and who our God is. And because of Daniel's stance to do so, he didn't argue. He didn't didn't get bitter. He didn't yell and scream. He was just very calm and polite. But he reminded 
Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. And actually, I think he reminded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all the others who were watching him that, hey, you know what? I understand we're under rule by this king right now. And the reason why we're under rule of this king right now is because we were really foolish and we didn't trust God when we should have. And so he's punishing us for our own sins. We, we earned this, okay? But God still loves us, and he's going to be there for us through this. And remember, the God who loves us, who's going to be there for us, he's the one who actually sets kings in place. And so, yes, Nebuchadnezzar is our ruler right now, but God put him in place. And do you know why God put him in place? Because he's watching out for us, and he's going to preserve a remnant in Israel because he's going to see through his promise and give us back the promised land, and he's going to elevate us again. But we're going to have to pay for our sins. Do you know that God's in charge of this election? Do you know that he's got this figured out? And I'm going to be honest with you, my thoughts, just my thoughts, I think God cares as much about this election as he does who wins the football game. I don't, I don't think he really cares that much about that as much as he cares about each and every one of his creation who are going to be impacted by this. And I think he loves us more than he cares about who's going to be the next president of the United States. And I think part of that is that he's calling out to those of us who may or may not like whoever that next president of the United States is to say, it doesn't really matter. I want you to love me more than you hate that guy. I want you to love me more than you're afraid of what he may or may not do. I want you to love and trust me that even if you see something that you don't like, doesn't mean I didn't allow it to happen because I changed Jesus. I can sure enough change the president and I can change all of us. Daniel knew that. Are you reminded of who's really in charge of this election? Because regardless of the outcome, we need to stay one in Christ. And the only way we're going to do that is to keep our eye on the prize and know who's in charge. The second thing I want you to see this morning, and this one hurts a little bit, lost souls are more important than your ego. Man, man. You know, God, if I can just argue with somebody and tell them how stupid they are, they may actually listen to the reality that Jesus loves them. Isn't that a great strategy? Come here, friend. Let me tell, let me tell you how dumb you are. You know, it's like jumping out and, and, and just starting straight out with a conversation about hell instead of talking about the reality of Christ. Now, you've got to have both. I believe that. But you can't have one without the other. And I've never seen anybody argue someone into a God-filled eternity, but I've seen a lot of people argue people into a God-filled eternity. And we'll stand before that judge who's in charge, and we'll answer for those things. And it's important that we do so. But in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, a familiar verse for many of us, it says, Do not. Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So somebody's got a different political view than I, than I do. Somebody's got a different ideal than what I do. Somebody has different values than what I do. That doesn't mean we have to condone those things. It doesn't mean we just kind of brush over them. But what we have to do is actually see where is their standing in Christ. If they're a new believer or a believer that's not very mature, then we, we have an obligation to teach them the truth of God's word, not the truth of what we believe and think, unless it's filtered by God's word, right? If they don't know Christ, they don't they're not have a relationship with him, I'd love for us to start with the Bible, but the reality is we're not on common ground there. What we are on common ground is that we once were sinners, and God saved us. But instead, if we get so conceited and so ambitious and so rambunctious and so upset about winning people over to our way of thinking on our politics, we're going to miss out that regardless of our politics, we get an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And that Jesus 2020 is a much better ticket than anything else that's out there. But if we get wrapped up in our own emotions and our own anxieties and our own fears and our own anger, then we're going to be further polarized than what they were in 94, 2004, and 2014. We're going to be so full of hot air that nobody's going to be interested about what's on the outside of the balloon because what's on the inside, they're afraid of letting go. 
you remain one in Christ regardless of the outcome of this. And the way we do that is we remember that our souls are far more important than our ego. And people are going to say things and do things and steal your signs and do whatever. I mean, that's one of the funniest things that I've enjoyed is watching how people secure their signs. There was a video last week that I just laughed my head off that somebody put a low-voltage fence uh, to their to their sign. And somebody reached out and grabbed hold of that sign, completed the circuit, and it was hilarious. And I'm just sitting here thinking, really? Your life is so whatever that you've got to jump out of your car and go steal a sign out of somebody's yard because you disagree with that sign? I mean, if you really wanted to make an impact, particularly a positive impact, plant flowers in the, in the flower beds for them. Instead of taking away, give back. Don't let your egos over the reality that there's a lot of souls out there that need Jesus. They don't need your politics. And they sure don't need politics from the church. I don't mean the church doesn't have to participate in certain political things. In fact, we should. We should be able to sway some of the things that are out there by our faith and by our trust in God. One of those things is, in fact, the pro-life movement. That's one of those things that the church absolutely should be involved in that. And I'll tell you something, winning arguments, getting in debates, having shows, or doing whatever the case may be, is no substitute for praying and loving people regardless of a decision that they make. Because people who have gone through that, where they've chosen to take a life of an innocent child, they need deliverance, forgiveness, and love for that decision. Because God still loves them. He's going to like what they did. And if we're honest, there's a lot of stuff you do he doesn't like either. But he probably loves you. He loves you. And he wants you to be one with him as he and his father are one. The, the next thing we can do is be part of the solution and not the problem. Now, that actually takes us a, a step further, right? Because sometimes we are the problem. I mean, let's just be honest. You can't go anywhere and not have a conversation about politics, especially today, right? Wouldn't it be great if, 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 if we, we could get past that? I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to a day that we don't have to have a conversation about red or blue or Trump or Biden or whatever the case may be. I would love, because I know what that does to me. My blood pressure shoots up. I get all anxious about those things. But in Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Jude, verse 18 and 19, we see this. It says, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. This is the same conversation that Jesus was having with, with the Pharisees that day when, whenever they accused him of casting out demons in the name of Satan. He's saying, by the world's standards, you guys make a little bit of sense. But by the spirit that's greater than anything that you're actually able to comprehend, it is by the spirit and authority of God by which I cast out these demons. And he's saying, really, the problem, fellas, is you. It's not me. Instead of owning up to the things that, that you do not control, and instead of realizing that you should be part of the solution instead of the problem, instead you're still pointing out the problems in others. And he's saying that in the very last days, it's what Jude says, and I agree with this, and I think we're actually in an element of that right now at some point, that there are going to be scoffers, there's going to be godless people devoid of the Spirit who cause divisions. And according to the Scriptures, both in Ephesians and Galatians and even part of Philippians, that those who cause disruption in the church, especially those who are not of the house of God, it is my duty as the pastor to love them and invite them to leave. And even more so for those who are in the body of Christ, and especially if they let their politics get in such a way that it disunites the church, it is my job as the shepherd to bring them back to reality of the oneness of Christ or break a couple of legs because they keep running away. Not a job I look forward to, to be perfectly honest. And so church this morning, that's part of what I'm doing. I'm either wheeling you back in or breaking a couple of legs. And I'm telling you this, you have a right to believe anything you want to believe about your politics, but you have a responsibility because of the blood of Christ that was shed for you to remain one and keep the body united. And regardless of the outcome of this election, 
You don't have the right to disrupt the body of Christ. You do not. You ask a Democrat or Republican if the Bible's on their side and they'll put the wrong filter on it and they'll tell you they are. And every one of us, regardless of what side we are, we'll find a way to say, well, God must be on my side or he wouldn't have let that happen. No, God actually loves you enough to let you make some decisions, even some really bad ones. And most of the times, the really bad ones, you didn't even consult God to begin with. You just went and did something dumb. Don't blame him for that. That's on you. That's on me. That's on every one of us. A house divided against itself cannot stand, and that absolutely applies to the household of God. Finally, as we close this morning, I just want to put this out there for you, that we remember what unites us is greater than what divides us, and it's time that we all put that aside. Regardless of the outcome of this election, nobody's asking you to be a pushover. Nobody's asking you just to walk around mopey with sackcloth and ashes. Oh, my candidate didn't win. That may be more of a blessing than you think. Nobody's asking you to, to walk around and, and, and apologize to people or or ask them if they're really serious or if they're really happy. Nobody's asking you to do those things. But what I'm asking you this morning is to remember that what unites us is greater than what divides us, and it's time that we start acting accordingly. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6 tells us this. I, being Paul, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Regardless of the outcome of this election, we have got to remain united. And I'm not just talking about the people sitting in this room or the ones that are seeing this online. I'm talking about every person who has proclaimed Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. Whether you're Presbyterian or non-denominational or whatever the case may be, if you have a legitimate claim to the blood that saved you and called you, it is time you act and walk in a manner worthy of your calling because we have one God, one faith, one baptism, and one Lord of all. And just as Jesus is one with the Father, he prayed for us to be one with him and one with one another and one with one another so that those who are not yet part of the body would want to come in. And so let me ask you this morning, this in closing. Where's the filter? Is it on the front side of your faith or the back side of your politics? You bend scripture, you bend beliefs, you bend those things to make you feel good about how you think and act and do. Or do you use the word of God to let it work in and through you so that when you hear something or see something or don't like something that's politically different than you, you realize this, that regardless of the outcome, God always wins and he loves me and he loves every person who walks with me. And the other side, I have so much that he wants to say to me. And this is not how he wants us to live. How good and pleasant it is when God's children play together in unity. Psalm 133. Beautiful verse. How good and pleasant it is. Let's pray together. Father, a, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so for this body this morning and for those that are watching from home, I know we're in separate locations. 
But God, there are churches all over our community this morning that are worshiping you. And there are people that are sitting in those congregations. There are people that are sitting at home. There are people who are not going to church at all. And they're wondering what Wednesday morning is going to look like. They're going to be glued to their TVs and their small screens. And they're going to see all these things that are coming at them. They're going to wonder. They're going to wish. They're going to prepare. They're going to be be happy. They're going to be excited. They're going to be angry. They're going to be frightful. God, we're going to run all the, the emotions in 24 hours this week, each and every one of us. Meanwhile, I fear, Lord, that we're going to miss out on the reality that there is one God, and He is you, and you love us so much that it breaks your heart to see us treat one another differently because our politics are different. And even more so, as your creation out there looks for answers, we're going to find more solace in a political party that appeals to their flesh than a God who's already paid for their salvation. And so, God, I pray for the church this morning that each and every one of us would would remain united in Christ regardless of the outcome, that we would choose to follow you, that we would choose to spend time with you, and that, Lord, when we catch ourselves getting a little anxious or a little angry or a little frightened instead of turning to CNN or Fox or whatever our source of disinformation may be, open up the scriptures and we'll be comforted by the words of Christ, by the promises of you, and by the reality that you put every leader in place because you've got a plan for us. Father, forgive us for how we break down the unity of the body. Forgive us for our attitudes and our mindsets. Forgive us for being dismissive to others that don't think the way we do because they're not as smart as we are, as educated as we are, as passionate as we are. Father, teach us not to draw lines in those places, but instead, let us see the image of you in every human being and love them as you have loved us. Lord, regardless of the outcome, we know you win because that battle's already been fought. And so we thank you for Jesus who died on the cross for us. We ask this in his holy name. This morning, friends, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, and I, I, we do this once a month anyway, but I really think it's appropriate for us to do so. If you haven't already gotten one of the, the cups and the wafers, there's some out there on the back table, and um, you could have somebody bring that to you. It's a two-part thing where it's got the little wafer on top and the juice. It's kind of a two-part thing for Jesus, too, in some ways, where he spoke of his body and his blood being sacrificed for each and every one of us. Now, in our church, we observe what's called an open communion. And by that, what we mean is if you profess Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and you're in good terms with God, that doesn't mean you're sinless because you're not there yet. If you can accept those sins and understand what they do with God, then we invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper because as we do this, as we're going to read in a second, we observe his death and his resurrection, the greatest thing that ever happened short of creation. There's a recreation that God is going to do for us and our families. And so, as we'll read in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death.
until he comes. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your body and your blood. Lord, if anybody knows what it is to to endure injustice, it was an innocent man nailed to a cross on behalf of every person that had been born and will be born in the future. So, Father, thank you for the body and the blood. Thank you for what they represent. Father, thank you for sending your son to die on that cross and for conquering death so that we may have hope and a future. We ask this in Christ's name. didn't get it that night. <laughs> they weren't sure what was going on. Jesus said that I'm, a, I'm not going to drink from the last cup. There were four cups in the, in the Seder meal, and the last one was that cup of redemption. He says, I'm not going to drink of that one until I come back. And that, friends, is the good news. He's coming back for us. He's going to drink that cup, and he's going to judge us. He's going to invite some to come and tell us others to go. And regardless of your politics, you have a responsibility to remain one in Christ so that others who don't know him do not perish for 